I want to, by a show of hands, I'm not going to make you tell your story, but by a show of hands, how many of you have ever had a moment in your life where you have made an absolute fool of yourself? Anybody? I can raise both hands. Here we go. Now, some of you are too reserved or too dignified to admit it, but we know better, okay? How many of you would say, you know what, recently, I've made anybody you know recently? Okay, few. Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. That's all right. That's all right. Not going to dignify that with a response. Anyway, <laughs> you know, if I look back over my life, there, there are certain situations where I have intentionally made a fool of myself. I see some of you with children, and I love it. You intentionally make a fool of yourself, especially babies. You know how it is with babies. We've got a four-month-old in our house now. I mean, you know, we used to go crazy over them, and you talk to them like you wouldn't talk to anybody else, you know, and, and you just kind of, you know, you, 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 you're all over them, and, and I remember when I was when I was uh, a teenager and would work in different children's ministry events and so on, you don't have to be pretty animated with kids, you know, if you go in there and you're just going to put them all in line and you're going to be, you know, pretty, you know, buttoned down and all, it's just not going to work. They're, they're not going to respond to you. You've got to be animated and you've got to have lots of fun and, you know, you've got to do things around children that you wouldn't have to do normally around adults. And if other adults saw you, your friends and family, they might think that you've lost your mind. And, and I remember working children's camps, and we would have these different songs that would play, and we'd have motions to the songs. And some of the adults that were there weren't too, you know, fond of getting up in front of the kids to lead the motions. And so when I was a teenager, I thought, well, you know, I'd give it a shot, and so I couldn't dance or anything like that. But I got up there, man, we had such a big time. And I intentionally made a, made a fool of myself for, for the right reasons. Some of you do that. Some of you are working, the folks over working with the kids right now, I'm sure that's what they're doing. They're getting going, doing motions and songs and all that kind of stuff for, for the right reasons. But if I'm honest with you, I have to admit to you, there have been occasions where I've made a fool of myself for the wrong reasons. Um, now, I, I'm going to tell myself here for just a little bit, and, and, and some of you will hold this against me, I'm sure. And, you know, and that's okay. Right? It'll come back out down the road, and I'll dig up some dirt on you, and we'll just call it even. So, anyway. <clears throat> <laughs> but when I was playing baseball at Murray State, um, Nancy uh, had a really bad cheering accident. She fell from the and all that kind of stuff. Spent two weeks in the hospital. Somebody grabbed that game race arena and all that. Anyway, um, but for those two weeks, it was pretty stressful. It was just really, you know, really tough. We'd been dating for a little while, but we knew we were heading toward marriage and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I was just kind of pimped up like this. Well, I got into a baseball game with an umpire that I didn't quite agree with. And, and, for whatever reason, umpires think that they're in charge when they're on the field. And I cannot, for the life of me, understand why they think that. And so I told this umpire that he wasn't any good. You know, I just, I, you know, I didn't use any choice words over base. I just told him you're terrible. And he threw me out of the game. And if that wasn't enough, I proceeded to yell how terrible he really was about this far from his face in, in view, in full view of all the people in the stands at Murray State. And made an absolute fool of myself. I mean, just absolutely, so much so that the coach of the other team that day was a guy who's at Eastern Illinois, who's still the coach there. Last year, I had the opportunity to lead chapel for their team on a Sunday morning when they came to visit, and that's when he remembered about me. You know, for the wrong reasons, I, I made a fool of myself that day. All of us, at one time or another, are guilty of making fools of ourselves for the wrong reasons. Whether it's losing your temper, or doing something you wish you hadn't done, or whatever it may be. It could be a really, really big deal that causes a lot of pain, and you say, I'm just foolish. 
or it could be little funny little things that really don't hurt anybody, but you just made a fool of yourself and didn't intend to. I want to put before you today that my challenge to you is to absolutely, for, from this moment on, when you walk out of these doors, to set your mind on every single day, every minute of every hour, making an absolute fool of yourself, but for the right reasons. And I hope today to show you the why and the how of those right reasons. Because in life, you are going to make a fool of yourself every single day, every single minute of every hour, whether you realize it or not. And I hope that leaving here today, that we are on the same page, and I can show you how and why to make a fool of yourself for the right reasons. Now, we're going to look at today a guy named David. And uh, David is a very fascinating character in the Bible. Uh, he is absolutely one of the most uh, dynamic characters. He's so fun to study. Uh, he, he goes through so many different things. There's always something to be learned from his life. God used him in some incredible ways. He had some major issues in his life. He did some things that weren't right, caused some major family problems. He had a completely dysfunctional family. So if that's you, then you can relate to David. Uh, if you've ever messed up and, and, and really just done it royally, just, I mean, just all out, just messed up your whole life, David can understand. David's a, a really fascinating character. I, I want to I test your knowledge this morning of what you know about David. I had the opportunity Thursday night, uh, the privilege to, to preach at the Baptist campus ministry. And, and I did a little true-false kind of quiz on John the Baptist that night, and I gave away some stuff. Now, I have to admit to you, I'm not going to give anything away today. Right? I gave you lemonade last week. It's got to be good enough for a little while. Uh, but, but I do want to quiz you. Here's what I want you to do. Turn your bulletin over and just, just number one to five. You're going to write down a T or an F. I just want to see what you know about, about uh, David. <clears throat> so play along. There's no prizes at the end. But play along. Here we go. True or false? These are all, all true or false questions. Just see what you know. David was the youngest son of King Saul. True or false? David was the youngest son of King Saul. True or false? David is mentioned over a thousand times in Scripture. David is mentioned over a thousand times in Scripture. Number three, Saul tried to kill David because he couldn't play the harp. Saul tried to kill David because he couldn't play the harp. Number four, David lost an arm in a bear attack as a young man. David lost an arm in a bear attack as a young man. Number four. And then number five, David is one of the earthly ancestors of Jesus. True or false, David is one of the earthly ancestors of Jesus. All right, now, you, you cannot fail because even if you do, I'm sure you're going to lie and tell everybody to get them right. And that's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll pray for you. But, um, but let's, let's roll through them. True or false, David was the youngest son of King Saul. Everybody say true. Everybody say false. Uh, false. His wife, false, because he's the son of who? Guy in Jesse. All right, not the king. He's the son of a guy in Jesse. David is mentioned over a thousand times in Scripture. True, false? Uh, that, that, that's true. Uh, he is. He is. He is over and over. Both New Testament and Old Testament were true. Number three, David tried to, uh, Saul rather, tried to kill David because he couldn't play the harp. True? False? Did he try to kill him? Why did he try to kill him? He had an evil spirit. He was jealous. He, 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 was, he was jealous of him. Uh, number four, David lost an arm in a bear attack as a young man. I hope you kept it straight, Brad, while I was trying on that one. I was really trying, just looking down because he wouldn't see me smile. Well, what would happen with the bear attack? Well, he killed the bear. It was bare hands. You know, I said, well, that was, you know, I was 
you know, I was working on that. I'm going to take a trip to do some of that stuff over the summer. But uh, number five, David is one of the earthly ancestors of Jesus. And that's, that's absolutely true. He, he is mentioned in every genealogy of Jesus. David, like I said, you may know some about him. You may have gotten all those right. You may have gotten them all wrong. Either way, I, I, I want you to, to kind of journey along with me the next couple of weeks as we look at just three different episodes in the life of David. We could spend literally a full year of Sunday morning sermons talking about the life of David, and it would not get old. It would be fresh every single week because of what he did. But, but I, I tried to select three episodes that maybe you know something about, maybe you don't, uh, but, but really point to uh, who David was and what we can learn from him. Now, we're going to be this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you've got a Bible handy, I want you to turn there. In the book of 2 Samuel is going to have a 2 in front of it, and then the name Samuel. Uh, it's over in the Old Testament. And if you have trouble finding it, as always, just go to the table of contents, look it up, and, and get there. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we're going to camp out. But what I want to do first is I want to catch you up to speed on what's happened in the life of David to this point. Uh, by this point, he, he has... Um, He's gone through quite a bit of his life, actually. Saul uh, had been the king. King Saul was the first anointed king of Israel. Uh, and, and he was, was a guy who did not rule or live as God wanted him to. So he's rejected by God. The people wanted a king. They wanted one. And, and the Bible says that, that Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, he's the guy you look at and say, that's who we want in charge. But he didn't do it God's way. And not too long into his rule, God rejected him and sent the prophet Samuel to go to the house of Jesse to anoint a king from one of his sons, and God chooses the youngest son who happens to be out in the field. Nobody's even thinking about him because he's taking care of the sheep, and that's who God chose to be his next king. But even though David was anointed as king, it's not time for him to take over yet, so he's got some lessons to learn. And in fact, there are several episodes face-to-face, so to speak, with Saul, even though Saul doesn't know he's there, David has the opportunity to kill the king and take over, and he doesn't do that. We see David as a man of character, even as a young man. We see David in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, killed Goliath, famous story. And as a result, he becomes famous and popular and serves in Saul's court, plays the harp to try to soothe the king when he has his bouts of depression and fits of rage. Saul eventually becomes jealous and tries to kill David, as we mentioned before. But David is always faithful to God, and eventually he takes over for King Saul after the king dies. Soon after he took over, he united the the kingdoms of Judah and Israel into one united Israeli kingdom. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see him fighting and defeating the Philistines, and he's ready now to return to Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick up the story. 2 Samuel chapter 6. So by this time, the Scripture has shown us that David is a shepherd. He was a soldier. He was a musician. He's a poet. He's a songwriter. He's a lot more. He's had some serious ups and downs in his life, and he's learned from those. God has done a lot in him. And, and we'll, um, we'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Understanding this about David, that all that he's been through, all that he's done, he still remains what God said in 1 Samuel chapter 13 when he sent Samuel to go get David and anoint him as king. God said, I'm looking for a man. I've selected a man who is after my heart, a man after my own heart. And over in the book of Acts in chapter 13, it reiterates that, that David was indeed a man after God's own heart. Now, hopefully this morning we'll see a little bit about what that means. And so you look with me in the, in the scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
And so David again assembled all the choice men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal <clears throat> The ark is called by the, by the name, the name of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the children. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was set on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, systems, rather, and cymbals. When they came to Nathan's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to touch the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Outburst, outburst Against Uzzah as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of God ever come to me? So he was not willing to move the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom to get there. The ark of the Lord remained there in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place the tent, inside the tent, rather, that David set up for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributed a loaf of bread, a baked cake, and a raisin cake to each of the whole multitude of the people of Israel, both men and women. Then all the people left, each to his own home. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls and of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. David replied to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord. He chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will humble myself even more and humiliate myself. I will be honored by the slave girls you spoke about. And Saul's daughter Michael had no child to the day of her death. There are two fools in this story. Probably easy to identify them. Two fools that are very different. I want to show you this morning, how can you make a fool of yourself? As I said, I, my challenge to you is from this moment on, every minute of every day, every day of every week, and every month of every year and so on, to make an absolute fool of yourself for the right reason. There are two examples in this story of how you can do that. First example is how to make a fool of yourself, and, and that's David's example, and that's to cultivate a genuine affection for God. If you're going to make a fool of yourself for the right reason, it needs to be because you have cultivated a genuine affection for God. And the example here, of course, is David, who is a fool in the eyes of people. You have to understand his affection is directed toward God, but he's a fool in the eyes of, of people. Now, a genuine affection for God in your life is going to open you up to the disdain and the confusion of others. It's going to happen. I remember when I was in high school, and, and uh, I, I, I had been saved when I was about eight years old, and, and had been taught and discipled and trained to 
lived for the Lord as best I knew how, and certainly I was not perfect by any means, and I made mistakes like anybody else. And yet, the Lord was, was evident in my life, and His hand was upon me, and I don't say that any credit of my own, but because of His grace. And so through high school, um, I, I was not participating uh, in the things that other people did. Um, I played baseball and so on through high school. My teammates knew I, there was something very different about me than, than them. And later on, I remember several years after uh, having a conversation with one of my high school teammates. And he had recently given his life to the Lord and been obedient to the Lord in baptism. He was excited to tell me the story about it and all that kind of stuff. And, and he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, back in high school, he said, we talked about you behind your back all the time. I said, well, thanks for telling me that, you know. He said, we, we, we wondered what more was wrong with you. He said, but you know what I've come to realize? He said, you just knew something we didn't know. And, and he looked at me and he just said, you know, now I, now I understand and I would tell you that, obviously, I'm not telling you for my ego, because I told you I don't have a baseball game, so they kind of, you know, they walked out. But what I'm telling you that for is because when you truly have an affection for God, other people aren't going to get it. They're not going to get it. It's going to open you up to those things. So you're going to appear to be a fool in the eyes of people. It involves this affection for God, something we see, two things we see in the life of David. The first thing is a love for God's Word. How can you be a fool for God? How can you have a genuine affection for Him? I believe in the story, David truly is displaying his genuine affection for God. And it comes first through his love of God's Word. Now, if you know anything about the story of the Ark of the Covenant, maybe some of you only know from Indiana Jones. Okay, I don't know where you've gotten your Ark knowledge I happen to be an Indiana Jones fan. I know everything that Indiana Jones knows about the Ark. You know, I'm not sure that it's all exactly correct, but, you know, whatever. But the Ark of the Covenant was, was a big, big deal to the nation of Israel. Uh, the worship back then, as we know, is very different than our worship now. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, the focus of our worship is the believer and not the place. Now, that's a whole different sermon for a different day. But just understand that. Because the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within the believer, we are the church, we are the center of the worship, not the place. But back in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place of worship. That's where God's presence was, so the people came there to worship. And in the tabernacle, the most holy piece of furniture was the Ark of the Covenant. It was thought to be, and the Scripture said it was, the, the very throne of God where he sat to meet with his people, or his footstool, where he ruled from. It contained the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It contained a jar of manna to remind them of their time in the wilderness and how God had provided. And it contained the staff of Aaron, who was the first priest. It was a very holy piece of furniture. It symbolized the presence and the power and the blessing of God. But during the time that Saul was reigning in Israel, worship sort of waned. And it went away, and it got very dull, and the spiritual maturity sort of went out the window, and they, they did not focus on true worship of God. And even during that time, unfortunately, the Ark of the Covenant was taken from Israel and, and taken by the enemies of the nation. And so the loss of the Ark meant that God's presence and His blessing had departed, and His glory was gone from Israel. And so it's a big deal to get the Ark back. So understand all that. That's the reason we're talking about this in the first place in this particular story. I was worried about this box they had in the church. It, it was a big deal. It symbolized the very presence of God for them. And so it was so important, so important to God, uh, that he even gave specific instructions on how to carry it. No one was to touch it. 
They, they were to, to have poles that they slid into little ringlets, and, and the Levites, the priests only, would pick it up and they would carry it to its next destination. So what we have here in this first attempt, as you saw in, when I read the story, in first, the first attempt from verses 1 to about verse 12, the first attempt of David to bring the ark was on a cart pulled by some oxen. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, he's just getting it done. Let's just get the thing to Jerusalem. We need God's presence in Jerusalem. We want his blessing on the nation. We want him to, to know that he's in charge and everybody else to know. God's specific instructions were that the Levites only were to carry it on the poles that God had described back in, in the, the books of the law. And so when they loaded up on the cart, they're doing the right thing, but they're not caring about the details that God cares about. And so when the guy reaches out to steady it, and they think, well, that's kind of harsh. God killed him out there on the spot. God, in a sense, is teaching David a lesson. Yes, I know your heart is set on me. Yes, you're a man after my own, but you've got some, some learning to do. David was a man that learned that you need, and I need, and he needed to take God's word seriously, even in the details. The details mattered to God, and eventually they came to matter to David. It says here in the scripture that after the man died for touching the ark, that David was angry with God. He got to, well, you know, now hold on a second. That's, that's not the right thing to do. You don't need to be angry with me. You just simply need to do it my way. And so between attempts, what we have here is the ark of God resting in the house of Obed Edom. We get a glimpse of what God wants to do among his people. He brings blessing and honor to his family. And so David hears about it and recognizes, yeah, we need to get the ark to Jerusalem, but let's do it the right way. And so he follows in the next steps. He follows God's word to the letter. If you want to write down a cross-reference, in First Chronicles chapter 15, chapter 15 rather, verses 25 to 29, we see this story parallel. And what you have there is a little bit different detail. You have the same story, but it kind of fills it in just a little bit in First Chronicles chapter 15. What, what we see is David, not only does he want to do it the right way, but he gathers the Levites together, they put it on the poles, and they carry it to Jerusalem the right way. David is a guy who eventually, because of his great affection for God, cultivated this love for God's Word. So he puts the Levites themselves, they carry it properly, they, they, they take steps and, and then they sacrifice, and David's obedience was to the letter. I'm not trying to get you to be a legalist this morning. I'm not trying to get you to yank verses out of context and, and say, well, we need to follow the, this Old Testament law to the letter. We need to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to follow Him. He fulfills it all. And yet, at the same time, my challenge to you is just like David learned, is to take the Word of God very, very seriously. Fall in love with the Word of God. What it did for David was when his obedience came, he was free. That's when he danced. That's when he celebrated. This love of God's Word and love of His instruction was evident when it brought blessings to the nation. But David's affection grew for the Lord. Not only was love for God's Word involved, but you see David in this picture that I have in my mind of some guy who's sort of wearing, I'm not sure how to describe it without sort of getting out of line, but he's wearing something that would resemble uh, sort of a uh, kind of, uh, anyway, an ephod. And so um, <clears throat> last week I brought lemonade. I, I wasn't going to give everybody an ephod this week uh, and make you dance on your way out of church. But but David celebrates the glory and the presence of God. What's involved in this genuine affection for God? There's a great and genuine love for His Word, and there's also this celebration of God's glory and God's presence. 
David, because he's been obedient, he's now free to praise God. So as the ark is going into Jerusalem, there's music, there's shouting, there's dancing. These are all outward symbols of praise. From a heart that's full of praise to God. David's dancing is just a visible means of praising and honoring and thanking God. It always symbolizes in the Old Testament, always symbolizes joy and freedom and absolute praise of the Lord. His obedience has made him free, and, and here he is willing to make an absolute fool of himself because he was going to praise God. His loving of God's Word, his understanding of how powerful that is and his need to be obedient, led David to celebrating God's glory in his presence. He made a fool of himself, but he showed himself to be a man after God's heart. But as I said, there's always someone who doesn't like that kind of love and celebration for the Lord. And the other person in this story shows that there's another way to make a fool of yourself. So you can either make a fool of yourself by having a genuine affection, cultivating a genuine affection for the Lord, or, very simply put, you can refuse to cultivate a genuine affection for the Lord. Who's the other fool in this story? Come on, you say it. Michael, his wife. Now, you, you, she's known here in the story as Saul's daughter. <laughs> she's not even dignified enough in the story to be called David's wife. Here is his wife, who is refusing to cultivate this genuine love for the Lord. She becomes not a fool in the eyes of other people, which was her greatest fear, but a fool in the eyes of God. She thinks David's the fool. But it turns out that she is the real fool. What this involves is simply being cynical, being proud. She's a person who's very cynical, very full of pride. Her sarcasm is obvious. She's a She's telling him in verse 20 when he returns home and she's watched him from the window dancing and celebrating the Lord and, and, and praising God. And she says, she says to him, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Now, we don't have the inflection and tone of voice written into the scripture in black and white. But you can imagine, if you've ever been married or know someone who has, and I've heard some comments from time to time, not that anybody in here is, you know, sarcastic toward anybody we've been close to, but if you can imagine, she's been very, very sarcastic. Oh, you really outdid yourself today, didn't you? Oh, I bet you thought you were something. Did you see yourself out there? I mean, you know, come on. She's telling him what a fool he is. Yeah, I try to think of what, what can we relate her to. I, I think that she's, she's kind of like the person, if you see her from the window and she's seen what God is doing, and seeing people's lives be changed by the glory and the presence of God, and, and seeing real praise to God, and seeing others get excited about it. She's the person that sits back and just thinks everybody's getting carried away. Now, I'm not so sure about that. You guys are just kind of, you're just taking this a little bit too far. She's, she's that person, whether it's in the church or in the community or wherever, that would say, you know, I'm not sure that you can really let your religion take you that far. I'm not sure your relationship with God is anything but a private matter. It really doesn't need to be extreme. It really doesn't need to be lived out. She's that person who's sitting on the sidelines telling everybody else, just do it. Just, just slow down a little bit. Let's not get carried away. She's scared to death of becoming a fool in front of other people. Her pride is so evident. She's embarrassed that the king, David, has exposed himself and expressed himself like this. He tells him, in essence, you know, a dignified, controlled, balanced person such as the king wouldn't do things like that. You've got an image to uphold. What, what are people going to think? And she certainly is like the person who's more worried about what others might think than truly living for and praising God. 
so caught up and well, I better not do this because people are going to think I'm a little too extreme. She's worried about not looking like a fool, but unfortunately for her, she becomes the fool, not in the eyes of people, but in the eyes of God. In the end of this story, David is the one who is free. David is the one who is blessed. He's the one who's confident before the Lord that he can praise God without any reservation. He's the one who's truly happy. He's the one who's joyful and fulfilled. And he's the one who's given an everlasting promise by God because he became a fool for God. Willing to be a fool in the eyes of people, in the eyes even of his closest family members. All for God's glory and all for God's sake. Michael, his wife, the very last verse, it says, And Saul's daughter Michael had no child the day of the death. She was the one who was barren and empty. And in one sense, we see this curse of God on her life. She was unwilling to completely sell out to the Lord. She was unwilling to go all out and instead she remained cynical. Wow. She's the one who winds up being the fool. She's the one who's foolish, not in the eyes of people in the eyes of God. And so as we come to a close this morning, I'd like to give you one little principle to remember. You've seen these two examples. You've seen these two people. You've seen that you're going to choose, based upon this, to be a fool in the eyes of people or a fool in the eyes of God. And I want to give you this little principle that you can remember that true followers of God have a genuine affection for God. True followers of God have a genuine affection for God. I say that because it's great that you're here this morning, and I'm so thankful that you are. It's great that you might come back next week, or that you might volunteer somewhere in the church. You might, whatever, I don't know. All those things are great. But I don't want us to make the mistake, as individuals or as a church, of substituting something else that we claim is, is us following God for the true affection, genuine affection that God desires from us. To truly follow God may include obviously coming to church, or serving on a team, or volunteering, or whatever, but at its core, truly following God is having that genuine affection for Him. It's shown in your love of God's Word, obedience to it. It's shown in your willingness to celebrate God's glory and His presence and to make an absolute fool of yourself every minute of every day for God's glory. So my question then is, do you have a genuine affection for God? Is your heart stirred by God? Do you delight in the things that God delights in? Do you love His Word? Do you celebrate His glory and His presence? Truly. Do we as a church have a genuine affection for God? Is He who our hearts are set on? Do we love His Word? Do we obey it? Do we apply it? Do we celebrate God's glory and God's presence? As a corporate body, do we, in our singing, do we truly praise God from our hearts? Or do we just sing some words? It's easy to do the opposite, isn't it? I've been there and done that. Do you have a genuine affection for God? Do we have a genuine affection for God? 
I hope you'll come to grips for that question this morning. I hope God will wrestle with your heart this morning to reveal to you whether or not you do have a genuine affection for Him. One evidence that you have truly been saved is that your heart will now be genuinely affectionate toward God. So maybe this morning your decision needs to be that I need to give my life to the Lord. Maybe that would be your decision. Or maybe this week you'd simply apply the truth we've seen from David's life that you would cultivate this genuine affection for God. That you say from this moment on, I am willing and I, I, I commit to making an absolute fool of myself for the Lord Jesus. That I'm going to cultivate my love for His Word. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to concern myself with the details of it. I'm not going to let this week go by and from Sunday to Sunday, that's the only time I get the Word of God. I'm going to do what I've got to do to cultivate my love for His Word. There's great benefit in, in the Word of God. I'm going to write down the reference in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 16 and 17 talk about it. The Word of God is profitable, it's beneficial, brings to us teaching and correction. The Bible says rebuke and showing us where we're going wrong. It's training for righteousness so that we may be complete and equipped for what God wants us to do. That's the power of God's Word in your life. Maybe this week you'd also celebrate the Lord's glory in His presence. Maybe for the very first time some praise would well up out of your heart and come out of your mouth. Or maybe for the first time in a long time. Or maybe you just continue that pattern in your life. Maybe through music or through praise. Maybe you just get a little bit carried away in praising God this week in your life. Maybe this week you'd take it to an extreme and you'd say, you know what? I'm really going to live as if I believe what the Bible says. For some, you say, well, that's pretty extreme. For others, you say, well, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Maybe this week you'd get to the point where you just simply let the Lord consume you. The truth is, and we all know this, I hope, and if you don't, let me tell you the truth. Our affection for God is absolutely important, but it pales. Absolutely and overwhelmingly pales in comparison to His affection for us. He demonstrated that by the death and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, to offer us forgiveness, to offer us eternal life. God wins us over because of how loving and gracious He is. His affection for us, the Bible says, never fails. So if you say, I'm failing in my affection for God, turn your eyes toward Him and receive His affection for you today. Let Him set you back on your feet. Let Him put you back on course. And do what you can and what you must to cultivate a genuine affection for God. Let's pray together. question remains, do you have a genuine affection for God? Do you genuinely love Him? Do you genuinely concern yourself with the things that concern Him? And if not, why? Maybe it's because you don't truly really know Him. And maybe this morning, your decision is to say, Lord, I, I place my faith in You. I receive Your free gift of salvation and eternal life. Jesus Christ alone. I believe that He is the Son of God. I want Him to be Lord of my life. And you watch how God will develop genuine affection for Him in your life. Maybe for some you say, I've reached that point before, but life has thrown me some stuff. My heart's a little cold today. And He's 
say, God, spare me up. God, don't let me get out of here without you sparing in me a genuine affection for me. I want to cultivate that with you. Do you have a genuine affection for me? David was free. He was perfect. He was peaceful. He was joyful because he had a genuine affection for God. You demonstrated that affection, that everlasting affection and love toward us that you died for us. You offer us forgiveness and eternal life. And may we not be so foolish to worry about what others think, but may we be foolish enough to lose ourselves in you. Help us, Lord, to cultivate a genuine affection for you. To love your word, to celebrate your glory and your presence. May that be true of us as individuals and as a church. Lord, we love you. We realize we are nothing without you.